here we are. Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day. Uh, we've really tried to pull out all the stops. This, this weekend, this is the Mount Everest, isn't it? This is the summit of our faith and the hinge point of history. It all revolves on what happened from Friday to Sunday long ago. And those events have been the subject of more great literature, more beautiful music, more inspiring artwork, more eye-raising architecture than, than any other event in human history. We've tried to capture up some of that and, and bring it for you today. But we've also tried to ground it in the reality of human life. And that's why the words of my friend Dan are so compelling. His testimony brings the power of the resurrection into an individual human life and shows us what it can do. Thank you, Dan, for your courage. We know that God will honor your life's motto, that redemption, the redeeming love of Christ, will be your theme now and for all of us until we die. One of the other ways that you'll know that this is a special Sunday as you look around is the, is the gathering of extended family and friends and the clothing. This may be the first time I can remember, at least in a long time, when all three pastors have shown up in a suit. I mean, it's, it's quite... So yes, we do have them, even if we don't wear them, but I, I was sorely tempted, I have to be honest, to wear overalls, just to... To get a pair of Dickies. And here's why. One of the themes, one of the threads that we're going to use to tie together what happened on Good Friday to this morning is the theme of gardening. You know, the story of the human race began in a garden. It began in a garden with a man named Adam. And then the story of Jesus, the one who would be called eventually the second Adam, reaches its climax also in a garden. So if we could... I'd like to back the story up just a little bit, back from today to Saturday to Friday to Thursday night, and spend just a few minutes with Jesus, imagining him on his knees in prayer in the garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And you could argue that the real victory happened there when he set his resolve when decisively he made this the conviction of his life, that he would embrace, fully knowing what was ahead of him, he would embrace the events of the next three days. And to be clear, at that moment in the garden, Jesus still had lots of other options. He could fight. There was a whole group of motivated convicted, young, enthusiastic warriors, zealots they were called. Jesus had charisma. They would follow him. They could stage an uprising, maybe even overthrow the government. He could do that. Or there was a group of monastic types. They were called the Essenes. He could join them and they could escape into the desert, start a safe little community and be prayerful and reflective. And many would follow. He could pitch in with the chief priests. He could collaborate with them and think about the reforms that Jesus could bring about in the world if he had the temple as the platform for his teaching. He could cut a deal 
with Pilate. Imagine trying to influence the course of world events from the inside, from a seat of power within the Roman government. What could that have done in the world? He could call upon God to be delivered from everything that was ahead of him, ask to be spared, legions of angels, one more miracle that might rally everyone to his cause. But Jesus, that night, on his knees in the garden, eyes filled with tears, did none of those things. Now, setting aside for a second the questions that people may have about his claim to divinity and about his identity, we do know this. We do know what he did that night. This one lone, deserted, vulnerable man man decided, I know what I must do. I will not fight. I will not run. I will not cut a deal. I will not dazzle them anymore with power. I will die. And he put it in a prayer. Father, not my will, but yours be done. And as a simple historical reality, we know that that it was sin, human darkness, and every other person involved in the events that would unfold in the next few days. Betrayal and courts of injustice and and just the brutal cruelty of everything human beings have designed to torture each other. It's all those things that, that might have put Jesus on the cross, but But he believed that somehow, through love, the cross would become not just a symbol of sin and death, but a symbol of something even more powerful, of of a kind of redemptive love that the world had yet to to know. Listen to the, the way one of my favorite writers describes it. This is John Ortberg, who says, you know, out of his remarkable brilliance, and his breathtaking courage, and his inexplicable love, Jesus sized up a situation that defeated every human attempt at correction. He identified exactly what would be needed to bring salvation. It would cost him his life. And 2,000 years later, his death is the most important, most remembered death in the history of the world. I mean, quite simply, Jesus outlasted, outmaneuvered, outthought every group, every power against them. But not just that. I mean, he simply outloved them. For Jesus in the garden that night had one agenda, one, one dominant idea. And it would supersede the agendas of everybody else who was conspiring against him. He would show the world the kind of love they had never seen before. And it would be his choice. Not Pilate's, not Herod's, not Caesar's, not the chief priests, not the crowds. Listen to what he said. This is in John chapter 10. He says in verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. In verse 18, no one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. It's my choice. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Easter Sunday changed everything. Easter Sunday, the cross was changed from a symbol of of human cruelty and power into a symbol of the relentless love of God. It was changed from an expression of the ultimate threat 
to the expression of our ultimate hope. And it came, in a sense, to express the exact opposite of its purpose. That the power of sacrificial love is greater than the powers of coercion or cruelty or violence. Sunday changed everything. But it didn't happen in the way that most people think, even today. I mean, from our point of view, here we are more than 2,000 years later. Many people still think of Easter as this comforting story that says spring is coming. It doesn't feel like it this weekend, but it is. Spring is coming. The trees are budding. Life springs. Eternal life goes on. Everything is going to work out. That's not the hope of Easter. The response to the resurrection on Easter morning in the Gospels consistently includes the emotions of fear and confusion. You saw it in the faces and heard it in the words of the young ladies who dramatized that for us this morning. People were more afraid after the resurrection than they were before. And none of the gospel accounts have Jesus or the angels saying anything like, now you don't have to worry about dying anymore. Now remember, Jesus' Jesus' followers believed that he was Messiah, the Christ, that that as Messiah, he was going to overthrow Rome, usher in a new empire for God's people. But then he died. And they fled, demoralized and afraid. And even though he said it was going to happen, he said it again and again and again. None of his followers said in the wake of the crucifixion, it's okay, everything is going according to plan. All four of the Gospels give us this very unflattering portrait of what happened when he died. His disciples were disheartened, they were dismayed, they were disappointed, disillusioned. And then suddenly they weren't. They saw an empty tomb, which told them that these sightings of Jesus might not just have been hallucinations. They saw a live person, which told them that the empty tomb wasn't just a result of body snatching. And then they remembered. They remembered what Jesus had said not long before he died. And if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to these three verses in the Gospel of John. This is where I'd like to have my overalls on. John 12, verses 24 through 26. Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life, Jesus said, will lose it. Well, anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for all eternity. Those words, haunting, cryptic, almost unintelligible at the time began to make sense. Starting on Sunday, they began to understand. What got released on Sunday was hope. Not just hope that that bad things that happen are going to turn out okay. This is a different kind of hope. This is hope that called people to die. To die to selfishness, to die to fear, to die to greed, to die to the lesser life of a lesser self so that a greater self could be born. And many people did. That hope changed things because of Sunday. This is Easter. 
And I can't think of a better day to talk about hope. And some of you are desperate for it. Some of us need it. It turns out it's worth talking about because human beings need it like the air that we breathe. We need it like we need oxygen. And it's hard to find. I mean, when we're, when we're young, we hope, we kind of hope recreationally, right? I hope I pass this test. I hope I make the team. I hope the Leafs win this year at last. I mean, come on, Lord. I hope I get the job. I, I hope she says yes when I ask her out. I hope he asks me out, or maybe I hope he doesn't ask me out. Or, or. If you're single, maybe it's I hope someday I can be married. You're married and you say, well, I hope someday we have children. It'd be nice to have some kids in the house. 30 years later, I hope the kids will leave someday. (laughs) But if you live long enough, hope will disappoint you. It just will. Life will disappoint you. Maybe you didn't get married when you wanted to. Or what you thought would be the joy of your life turned out to be life's greatest pain. Maybe you didn't have kids. Or maybe something you didn't foresee happened to one of them. Or something terrible happened to you and you wonder when all of those things happen, is there nothing more? Is there nothing underneath all of this? I mean, a a hope, an ultimate hope that goes beyond just feeling optimistic about life. A hope that allows you to, to stare in the face of tragedy and despair and not blink. This man, Jesus, he haunts the human race because he says there is. He was convinced of it. He was convinced that it's precisely when things look the darkest from a human perspective that God begins to shine the brightest. And he expressed it unforgettably one day in a way that's left its mark on everyone who's heard the story of Friday, Saturday, and especially today, Easter Sunday. Let me tell you again how he put it, those words from the Gospel of John. Very truly, I tell you, he said, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces a great harvest. Then he says something about the human condition. He says, anyone who loves only their life will lose it. And anyone who hates that life in this world will keep it for eternity. Again, strange, haunting teaching. What did he mean? Maybe we can start at the most basic level, just at the physical level. Jesus told stories and, and invites us to use the story as a way of understanding truth. So let's look at that story. Let's imagine for a second that you are that seed being thrown into the ground. Dirt shoveled on top of you. Imagine you could think that little seed. And you think to yourself, I guess it's over now. No air, no light, no sunshine, covered by the earth, can't move, can't see. This is the worst. This has to be the end. 
And then this strange little miracle. And we forget just how miraculous it is because it happens every day, but it still is. Something, we don't know what it is, something high above the earth begins to say something deep within, something within that seed that says, rise up. And it does. And a little stem shoots out of the seed and begins to reach up towards the sky. And then roots shoot out from that seed and go deep into the earth to find their nourishment. And what looked like the end, as it turns out, was the beginning of something unimaginably wonderful. What looked like the worst thing for that little seed ended up to be the best thing, the only thing. As it turns out, that seed wasn't just buried, it was planted. The Bible is filled with stories of God working this way. His people, Israel, wandering around in the desert for 40 years, wanting to go back to Egypt. They thought they were dead. They'd rather just be slaves. God is about to plant this people in the promised land. And it turns out he would use their story to give hope to the whole world. A young boy is going to go up against the Goliath of a man. We all go up against giants. And we all feel, hey, you might as well bury me now. There's no way I'm getting through this. He had no idea. A strong, bright young man named Joseph. Buried in a prison that belonged to the Pharaoh of Egypt. He thinks his life is over. But God raised him up to become prime minister of the nation. You heard Dan's story. What about you? You see, the thing about being planted is it feels exactly like being buried. It looks like being buried. Except it's, it's true that a lot of the time, it's exactly when things look their darkest that God does something unimaginable. And we love those stories. We all love stories about hope. Easter time, the spring, life creeps back into the earth. Seeds send up their shoots reaching toward the sun. And we think about the power of positive thinking. If I could just be optimistic, I'll attract good things to myself. Jesus is saying nothing like that. That's not the gospel. What he's saying, first of all, is explaining what's happening to him. Unless a seed falls to the ground and dies. He speaks those words. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to die on a cross. He knows he's going to die on a cross. He's chosen to die on a cross. Who would make up something like this? But he believes that in that death, something terrible and something wonderful will happen. A great power will be released in the world. And a great story will be told that would not be told were it not for the cross. In fact, whatever you might think about Jesus, about God, about life after death, about miraculous things, we know at least this, he was exactly right about what would happen. And it did. And maybe you want to think about this just very briefly. If it hadn't happened... If Jesus had somehow just lived to a ripe old age and died quietly and painlessly in his sleep as an old man, he would have been forgotten centuries ago. He knew he would die. He chose to die. And that changed everything. In fact, one of the things that changed most dramatically is is the cross itself. Go to any cemetery. More graves are marked by the cross than any other symbol. And yet, 
this is an instrument of torture. I mean, it's curious when you think about it. Nobody in their right mind would engrave on the, uh, on the tombstone of a loved one the image of a noose or a guillotine or an electric chair. Why in the world would you mark the grave with a cross? For goodness sake, because of Jesus. No other explanation. Because he used the cross. The powers thought they would use the cross to stop Jesus. Jesus decides he will use the cross to show the human race what the love of God is like. He decided he would use the cross to show people what the power of forgiveness can do in the face of hatred. He decided he would use the cross to show people the power of life even over death. And he decided he would use the cross to show people the enduring, irresistible strength of of sacrificial and humble love. And so he suffered. He suffered hate without hating back. He was mocked and he wouldn't mock in return. He embraced people that everyone else deemed untouchable. He spoke courageously, he spoke truth to power, and that made the powers really mad. They couldn't stand it. And so they hung him out on a cross. And then they took him down, they buried him in a tomb, and they said to themselves, that's the end of that. The last we'll see of that problem. But they were wrong. Because on the third day, on the third day, something way up above said to something way down deep, rise up. And he rose up because it turned out Jesus wasn't just buried in the tomb. He was planted. And the life that grew from that seed changed the world. And I know we're a Canadian Baptist church and we don't say amen a lot. But if you were ever going to say it, that's the time to say it, right? Amen. He was raised from the dead and this is our hope. Some of you are here with us on Good Friday. And you may not recognize these planters on the stage. But if you were here, you know that these were spread all around the sanctuary. And into these planters, those who were here took little sheets of paper. And on those papers, they had written down their grief, their guilt, their shame, the circumstances of their life, their regrets, their remorses, the circumstances that they wish would change and just aren't. Cancer is written in there. Addiction is written in there. Broken marriages, unreconciled relationships, they all got buried in there on Good Friday. But look what comes. What comes on Easter morning? Maybe what gets buried somehow miraculously is just planted. We live in our lives at the intersection of hope and despair. That's our world. A wonderful writer put it, and I think this is the, one of the best ways of explaining Resurrection Day. Frederick Beekner said, the resurrection means that the worst thing is not the last thing. The worst, the very worst thing, the worst thing you can possibly imagine is not the last thing. 
Now all of this, it, it really doesn't mean anything if you don't respond to it. Jesus said, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. He says, if you, if you love only your life, you wind up losing it. I don't think that means he didn't want us to embrace living. Jesus loved living. But we know what he meant. If I put only my own selfish interests first, my satisfaction above everything else, if I make it my ultimate goal to do in life what so many people generally do, climb the ladder as high as I can, accumulate as much as I can, live in comfort, indulge in everything, I kind of live my life like that seed that never really gets planted. Barren, fruitless, stagnant, and alone. But there's a way to live with God, a way to live a life that it's quite counterintuitive. Let me try and put it this way. I, I, I love this story because, because it comes from the mind of children. And sometimes God uses them to teach us things that we wouldn't find on our own. The Sunday school is trying to explain to her class salvation and grace and these really high level concepts of faith. And so she asked them, can you get to heaven just by being a good enough person? And they all said, no. Well, can you get to heaven by going to church enough? No. Can you get to heaven by giving enough money or doing enough good deeds? No. Then what do you have to do to get to heaven? One little kid says, I guess you have to die first. Kind of makes sense when you think about it. You have to die first. Unless a seed falls into the ground and dies. You have to do that first. Have you done that? I die to my ego. I die to sin. I die to my own errant will. And I surrender. God, your will, not mine. I put my life in God's hands so I can be born to a greater life, to a greater self, to a, to a nobler self through Jesus. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, is how the scriptures put it, but he that lives in me. And then what happened to Dan, to Dan and Ruth and their family, what's happened to millions and millions of people for thousands of years can happen to you. This is the most important decision a human being gets to make. If you want to belong to him, if, if you want him to forgive and save, if you want your life to be planted and not just buried, I'm going to invite you to say a simple prayer with me. Let me bow your heads. And if this is you, if you're wrestling through this for the first time and this is the moment, you can pray with me and say, God, today is Easter Sunday. I want to humble myself. I want to confess that there's stuff inside of me that I don't want. I can't control. There's anger, bitterness, hatred, greed. Guilt, addiction, regret, failure, shame, whatever it is, God, I'm laying it all down. 
I'm naming it. I'm repenting of it. I want to see it buried with you. And I'm asking you now to forgive me and cleanse me. To do what Jesus did for me on that cross. God, I want to die to my old ego, my old self-centeredness, my old habits. And I want to come fully alive to you. So Lord, I commit my life to you from this day forward. I commit it to the risen Jesus, my Lord, my Savior, my hope, and my friend. And again, just keep your heads bowed for another minute. If you've prayed that prayer, I want to pray briefly for you. Heavenly Father, I pray now for every woman, every man who has in their heart surrendered their life to you today. Help them, God, in the minutes that follow to find the right person to talk to, who can begin to lead them on a path to growth and grace and salvation, just like we heard about this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you're still in the business of redeeming and reclaiming and restarting the lives of women and men. I pray for everyone in this room who feels buried. I pray the only hope that matters, the only life that counts, the only name that stands above every other name, I pray that Jesus will come to life in them. And that out of the dust of our lives, you would bring beautiful things. Pray together in the name of our crucified and resurrected Savior, in Jesus' name, amen.